0: I love it when the uh, tears flow, when the Word of God is being read. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Um, There was a gentleman named Roy in a previous church I belonged to who would come and read every six weeks or so, and every time he stood up, you knew (laughs) the waterworks would be turned on, um, and you waited for it, but it was really a lovely thing to behold. Let's pray this morning as we study God's Word together. Father, you are in our midst this morning, and we praise you, and we thank you for making a way, for dwelling with us, and we pray that, Lord, the good that you have in store for us would be poured out upon us this morning, Um, the changes that you want to see in our hearts would be done, would be accomplished by your Holy Spirit, and that we would be strengthened as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm part of a book club here in town. Uh, We read one book a month, and we only read fiction. Uh, We're forever on the hunt for the great American novel, or at least for books that remind us of the great American novel. Um, And over the past few years, I've noticed that there's a surprising common theme that almost all great books have. Uh, Before I tell you what it is, I want to give you just a few excerpts, a few glimpses of it. Uh, So first, this is Alan Bradley, who's a Canadian author. He wrote, I felt a pang, a strange and inexplicable pang that I had never felt before. Now, even more than when I had earlier, when I first glimpsed it, I longed to be transported into that quiet little landscape to walk up the path to take a key from my pocket and open the cottage door, to sit down by the fireplace, to wrap my arms around myself and to stay there forever and ever. Here again is J.R.R. Tolkien, a British author. He wrote, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon and the orchards will be in blossom and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? And here then is another Brit called Elizabeth Gaskell. She wrote, every mile was redolent with associations which she would not have missed for the world, but each of which made her cry upon the days that are no more with ineffable longing. All right, so I'm sure you spotted the common theme there. Uh, Great novels so often are full of longing and especially with the deep longing for home. Uh, One of the most consistent themes that I can find that runs through all great novels is this profound sense of homesickness. Um, None of my examples there were Americans, but the great American novelists do this just as much. Our book club just finished reading Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow*, and it could not be more homesick if it tried. Uh, We all loved it. Um, And I expect that from time to time in your life, you have awakened that feeling of homesickness. Early on in our lives, it's usually a sickness for our own home, if our home was at all a nice place to be. Um, I remember lying cold, wet, and shivering on some forlorn British campsite as a preteen and shedding tears for my home. Um, I shed them again when I first moved to America and then once again when 5,000 miles away my parents sold the home that I had grown up in and moved out and I realized I would never again spend a night there. But perhaps the much greater homesickness that we feel is for a home we've never had and never even seen. The great novels make us homesick for an imaginary home, a home like Rivendell in the Lord of the Rings, the last homely house. Uh, Maybe you felt, as I felt when you read that novel or watched the movie, that your heart just ached to live there, safe and comforted in the house of Elrond. That, I think, is fiction's most powerful and lasting appeal, to awaken our sense of homesickness and in some ways to give us a home we've never had because homesickness is the lesser ache. It wards off the greater pain of depression and despair. With homesickness, I can live a few more days in this present crisis, in this bleak wasteland, if I believe there is a home that I'm heading for. Somewhere safe and warm and beautiful, full of laughter, food and music where evil cannot come and where I am known, loved and welcomed. That, I think, is our heart's deepest longing. And that is the reason God built the tabernacle. He came to make his home with his people. The tabernacle was God's own tent, right in the midst of all their tents. It was God's own house, right in their neighborhood. So today our task is to take a tour of the tabernacle. Uh, so let's find it in our Bibles first. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25 is on page 65 of the church Bibles. Exodus 25, and I want to start with verse 8. It says, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So we read there in Exodus 25, verse 8, that the purpose of the tabernacle was not primarily as a place of worship. It was not primarily as a place for settling disputes or judging cases, or as a gathering place for the annual feasts. It was primarily a home for God to dwell in the midst of his people. But in order to fulfill that function, it had to be exactly right. So today I want to investigate the tabernacle in detail and think about, first, what was the tabernacle like? Second, what did it take for Moses to build it? And third, what place does the tabernacle have in our modern Christian faith? So first, what was the tabernacle like? And the Bible's answer to that question is quite long. (laughs) Um, Flip back a couple of pages in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. What I want to do is just browse the ESV headings through this section of Exodus. Uh, So in chapter 19, we have Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, we were there two weeks ago when Fumi was preaching to us. And then in chapter 20, God spoke to them the Ten Commandments Taylor taught on those last week. Next come a few more sets of laws. We have laws about altars. Turn the page. Laws about slaves. Laws about restitution. Going on into chapter 22. Laws about social justice. Turn the page again. We have laws about Sabbaths and festivals. And that is all the law that we get in the whole book of Exodus. 112 verses about law there's more to come in Leviticus and Deuteronomy but that's it for now so next God promises the conquest of Canaan and then in chapter 24 he confirms his covenant with Israel and then in chapter 25 we start talking about the tabernacle Flip forward and read the headings with me. We have plans for the Ark of the Covenant, for the table for bread, the golden lampstand. Chapter 26, we find the tabernacle itself. Chapter 27, plans for the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, oil for the lamp. Chapter 28, the priest's garments. 29, the consecration of the priests. Chapter 30, the altar of incense, the census tax, the bronze basin, the anointing oil and incense. In chapter 31, God anoints two men with his Holy Spirit to complete the work for the tabernacle tabernacle. These are the first two men in the whole Bible who are said to be anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. So listen up artists. The first two people in the Bible who were filled with the Holy Spirit were artists. Aholiab and Bezalel. Keep turning the page. There's another note about the Sabbath. Then there's a break while we deal with that unhappy golden calf incident. Um, But then flip ahead and and we pick it up in chapter 35. All the instructions that came before are repeated again as they actually do the work uh, on through chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. And we get to the end of the book in chapter 40, the part we read aloud where we they put it all together, and the glory of God comes to live there, and that is the great. Climax of the whole book of Exodus. So, all in all, Exodus has 112 verses of law and 447 verses about the tabernacle. That's almost exactly four times. That is one number of four times. Uh, So much attention is given to God's tent. Are we listening? The Bible does not get this detailed or specific about any other material thing. I guess not counting people. <laughs> uh, and the only thing that comes even close is Solomon's temple. You'll notice that a whole lot of the verses about the tabernacle are really about the priests who serve in it. The tabernacle is inseparable from the priests who carried it, set it up, consecrated it, and operated it. And we're going to talk all about the priests next week. But this week, we're concerned with the structure of the tabernacle itself. And you all know me well enough to know that I'd give you a diagram. Uh, You could read all 447 verses, or you could just look at this pretty colored insert to your service leaflets. Um, Why don't you open it up to this plan view in the middle, this uh, double spread. Uh, God's plan for the tabernacle was a courtyard... A perfect rectangle, a double square, aligned to the points of the compass. Interesting, isn't it, that nothing in his creation is square like this or as st- uh, equally spaced as this? But as he gave them the design for the tabernacle, it's much more like a human building than one of God's own creations on the earth. Um, it has 20 pillars along the north wall. 100 cubits long, that's about 150 feet, and the same on the south wall. 10 pillars along the west wall, 50 cubits long, about 75 feet. I don't know the answer to this, but there is a strong um, common theme through Exodus of the number 10, right? We've seen uh, the 10 plagues, we've got the 10 commandments, and now the guiding theme of the tabernacle is very much the number 10. Somebody wiser than me can tell me why that is. Um, So you came in from the east to the uh, eastern entrance, and as you came in, first you'd be greeted by the bronze altar where all the animal sacrifices were made. Then by the bronze basin where the priests washed their hands. Then you would get into God's tent. That part is the part that's actually called the tabernacle. Everything outside in the courtyard is made of bronze or silver. Everything inside the tabernacle is made of gold or gold-plated acacia wood. The tabernacle itself was split into two rooms by a curtain. The larger room to the east was called the Tent of Meeting. For furniture, it had the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of the bread of the presence. Behind the curtain to the west was the Holy of Holies, where sat the Ark of the Covenant. So like the temple, later the tabernacle had three layers of separation from the outside. It had the courtyard wall, the tent covering, and the curtain within the tent. And it created three spaces, a courtyard, a holy place, and a most holy place. Turn over to the other side of those sheets, and you can see close-ups of the inside of the tabernacle and a side-on view of what it would have looked like. I didn't make this model. This was available online, (laughs) thankfully. Um, So as we look at it, what do we notice? Right away, we notice that the whole thing moves. It's not fixed to one spot. It's a tent. Everything in it is designed to be carried. God's careful instructions included hooks and loops and carrying handles. Not a single component was too large or too heavy to be lifted and carried. This is the God of a pilgrim people. He goes where they go, and home for them is wherever he is. So next we notice that the whole structure is set up to face east, same as the temple would later, the Bible uses that language, that faces east. But by that, we mean the exact opposite of what we mean when we say that churches face east. you notice that? This church faces east. And what do we mean by that? Which way is east? That way, right? Toward the front. We come in from the west. We sit facing east because this is a house of worship. And we face in the direction of God toward the sunrise to the east. The tabernacle faces east, but what does that mean? In the tabernacle, the door is to the east. The worshippers coming in were facing west, but God faced east as he looked out of his own front door. So it's another little note that the tabernacle was primarily a house and not a place of worship. It was oriented to God's perspective and not to that of his worshippers. Next, we notice how inseparable the tabernacle was from the priesthood. As you came in, first you met with the bronze altar there so that the priests could offer sacrifices. Then the basin, which was there so the priests could wash. The lampstand and the incense and the bread of the presence were all maintained by the priests. Those furnishings are there for people. They're not for God's comfort. They deal with sin and they make the tabernacle an appropriate meeting place for people with God. Only the ark required no maintenance from the priests. The ark was the place in the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt, and it was therefore the holiest item of all. We notice that the symbols of the tabernacle remind us of Eden, rich treasures, gold, beautiful embroidery full of pomegranates, a lampstand like an almond tree, and images of angels. It's like Eden, because that was the last place God and people lived together. And one final detail I find striking is that the outer covering of the tabernacle was in two layers. It was an inner layer made of goat's hair and then an outer layer made of ram skins. And maybe that was purely practical. Maybe these were the only materials they had that were sufficiently weatherproof. But it does seem to me highly symbolic. Symbolic of all the sacrifices that were needed to make this whole place possible. Symbolic of the living nature of the tabernacle, that it had skin and hair on it. And prophetic, that when God came to live with his people, he came to live within a hide of skin. There are some people, especially those of Muslim faith, who find it a shameful thing to think of God being incarnated as a man, Well, how about the humility of God here to come and live in such a man-made tent as this? If we accept his humility in coming to live in the tabernacle, surely that's a big step toward accepting his incarnation. All right, so that's a quick tour of the tabernacle. and Next, we're going to look at Moses' role in getting all this built. The theme of this whole sermon series is the life of Moses. And there's been just such a lot going on in Exodus recently with God revealing his character and his plans that it's been kind of easy to forget about Moses. (laughs) Um, But Moses has a big role here, doesn't he? Uh, Moses was the sole recipient of all these instructions on the mountain. He got the blueprint for the tabernacle up on Mount Sinai and he became the contractor who was to make it a reality. So Moses had to oversee the building of God's first house, the first place that God would dwell on earth since the Garden of Eden. That's a pretty big deal. He had to replicate the vision exactly. And Moses got it completely, perfectly right, as evidenced by chapter 40, when the glory of God came down to live there. What did it take for Moses to accomplish this? It took some expert vision casting, didn't it? God gave Moses a bee hag a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, and Moses had to convince the people to make it happen. And he needed to get the whole community on board and really sell this vision. He had to convince them to part with their treasures and to put some serious time and effort into this. Moses does this in chapter 35. And if you flip back to chapter 35 on page 75... I'd like to read from verse 20 because I find this part moving and beautiful. Verse 20 says, Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skilled woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen all the women whose heart stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate and spices and oil and for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense all the men and women the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought it as a free will offering to the Lord isn't that so beautiful Notice how many times that section talks about how people's hearts were moving them. Their hearts stirred them. Their spirits moved them. All this was done freely and gladly. It's just such a beautiful expression of worship to God and of trust in their leader. This was a community project. Moses absolutely could not have done it without all the people's participation, without hundreds and hundreds of people each playing their part without the skill of those women to spin goat's hair or the anointing of Aholiab and Bezalel to create artistic designs. Under godly leadership, the people accomplished something amazing, something never seen on earth before, a home fit for God. Could they even have done this before they left the land of Egypt, before they went to Egypt, before they collected all those treasures, before they grew to 600,000 people strong? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? This is a work befitting a great and numerous nation. We now now look back on Moses as one of history's great leaders, and it has a lot to do with this project, doesn't it? The vision casting, the galvanizing, the empowering of other people's gifts, the obedience to God, and the attention to detail. Moses did the right thing, and he did it right powerful leadership let's pray for all our leaders to be like this a godly leader is a precious gift lifting the people to heights they never could have attained without his leadership but that project as great as it was is over now the tabernacle is no more it has long since turned to dust the ark is lost despite the best efforts of indiana jones Um, what does any of this mean for us today What place does the tabernacle have in our modern Christian faith? Well, the tabernacle itself may be gone, but the idea of the tabernacle is very much alive and well. The desire of God to come and dwell with his people, to come live in our neighborhood, is alive and well. The tabernacle made a promise that God fully intends to keep. So the tabernacle was the first time since Eden that God had a dwelling place on earth, but it wasn't going to be the last. Oh, no. Because after Israel conquered the promised land, they built the temple in Jerusalem, and they moved the ark in there. God's home of canvas and animal skin became a home of cedar and stone, and God's glory came down to dwell there just as it had in the tabernacle. But even that wasn't permanent. Even that was torn down in the Babylonian captivity. And while it was later rebuilt by Zerubbabel, God's glory never came back to it until Palm Sunday. Before God revisited his temple, he had come to earth in a different sort of tent. The angel said to Joseph, the husband of Mary, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to dwell with us again in a different kind of skin. Not ram skin this time, but human skin. Being born into flesh of our flesh. And John links the incarnation of Jesus to the Exodus in the first chapter of his gospel when he writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally in the Greek, he made his tabernacle among us. A mobile house for God, just as the tabernacle had been taking the word of God, the provision of God, and the healing of God out to where it was needed. But Jesus is gone now, back in heaven at his Father's side. So where is the tabernacle now? Where does God's glory dwell on earth today? You know, don't you? The Bible's astounding answer is in his church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not individually, but corporately. Each one of us is an individual stone of the one temple where the Holy Spirit dwells on earth in glory. It has nothing to do with this church building, nice as it is. Uh, We remain part of the temple of God when we leave here. And all the components of the tabernacle are still in place in our Christian lives. So look back again at that central plan view in your handouts. We as Christians enter the courtyard through the eastern doorway and the first thing we meet is the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice. All the sacrifices of the law of Moses are now bundled together into the single offering of Jesus on the cross. His blood atones for our sin and allows us further up and further in. Without the covering of the blood of Jesus, none may enter. Next, we meet the bronze basin, which is now the baptismal font, where we are washed and made ready to enter the tabernacle itself. We go into the tent of meeting, where we meet with the living God. We are nourished by the lampstand of his word, the incense of prayer, and the bread of the Eucharist. Our three modes of encountering the living presence of God. And he comes to us easily now because the curtain has been torn. And the Ark of the Covenant, the fire of the Holy Spirit, is always inside us. So we are presently comforted by God with us, dwelling in our midst. But we are still in the wilderness. We remember that the tabernacle was made for the wilderness. And in the promised land, it was replaced by a golden city with foundations of stone. And so it is for us. Our true home with God is still to come. Our true Rivendell, somewhere safe and warm and beautiful, full of laughter, food and music, where evil cannot come and where I am known, loved and welcomed. The end of the book of Revelation is the great announcement. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is our whole hope. So let all our homesickness now be a longing for that home, for then it will surely be satisfied. What I think we all need today to take away from this is a good deal more homesickness. That might sound strange, but I view the pang of homesickness not as an enemy, but as a friend. I showed you at the beginning that all the best novels are full of homesickness and I think that's probably true of the other fine arts too. The best paintings show us the light from a far country. The best music captures the echoes of final joy and peace. The best theatre reveals humanity tragic, true and noble. And even the best architecture finds in itself some of the lines and the proportions of glory. But arguably... The human project of the past hundred years and all these other art forms has been to remove the homesickness, to scorn that and poo-poo that as so much wishful thinking, so much pie in the sky, and to replace it with something grittier, more realistic, violent, abstract, chaotic, art that reflects a nihilistic view of the world, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And so the project of modern entertainment is instead to distract us from our homesickness by means of colored lights and baubles. Music that is mostly noise, television that is mostly spectacle, and online content that is spectacularly shallow, trivial, vapid, and inane. It takes away our homesickness. It numbs us out of it, and it tells the story that this here is really all there is. It does that very deliberately, And we drink it in for that reason. But there's a problem. Because the truth is that we are then left with something far worse. The new project is truly out of the frying pan into the fire. Because it turns out that homesickness is the lesser ache that wards off the greater and more incurable pain of depression and despair. If I am not heading for a better home in glory, then I must make my peace with this being all there is, and there is no thought more depressing than that. Could it be for this reason, at least in part, that America is now the saddest, loneliest, most depressed country on the planet, full of drugs, alcohol, fits of rage, and teen suicide? Could it be that we have stifled our homesickness to our own damnation. On this possibility, my prescription for us today is that we find a way to get it back again. Homesickness isn't pleasant, it isn't exactly nice. (laughs) There are tears and groans of deep longing, but it's better because it's answerable, because the solution is coming, and because it's the human heart's true ache the one that will eventually be satisfied. So to keep ourselves sane and hopeful, I recommend that we keep our true homesickness alive, that we allow ourselves to feel it keenly. And there are plenty of places we can find it, uh, and and you'll surely know it when you do find it, when you connect with that core ache. It might be in prayer, it might be in worship, it might be in reading the scriptures, as I did today. I found it sometimes in fiction, in the great American novels, and if you want some reading recommendations, I'll happily give you a list. Some people, like Wendell Berry, find it in the great outdoors, in the ancient peace of a virgin forest, or the quiet majesty of a river. Art is helpful. The old art, maybe get yourself out to an art gallery, or spend time with children who are are full of the joy of life or host a fabulous meal for good friends that reminds you of the heavenly banquet. But one way or another, keep yourself homesick, hungry for the end of the story when God will make his home with us again.